That was the Morris Plains Community Band and Choir celebrating Christmas in October. They caroled outdoors a week before Halloween, figuring that might be their only chance if COVID cases keep rising. How do you make merry in a pandemic? Should we pass the cranberry sauce via Zoom this Thanksgiving? Open presents under a virtual tree? Can we self-isolate all winter long, like bears in hibernation, without going crazy? For the next few minutes, we'll unwrap some helpful holiday hints from a mental health expert. She'll tell us how to share joy, not germs. Hi, I'm Kevin Coughlin from MorristownGreen.com. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode of the Morristown Green podcast is brought to you by Morristown Medical Center, ranked New Jersey's best hospital for three straight years. Donna Gaffney helps people survive bleak times. The Morristown psychotherapist counseled schools and communities after 9-11, Sandy Hook, and Hurricane Katrina. She is the author of The Seasons of Grief, Helping Children Grow Through Loss. Donna's also an advanced practice nurse and has created a series of webinars at Rutgers to help frontline medical workers cope with COVID. Donna Gaffney, thanks for joining us here on the Morristown Green Podcast. Well, thank you, Kevin. I'm happy to be here. You are a, uh, a nurse and a psychotherapist. You deal a lot with grief and trauma. And I want to talk to you today about uh, holidays. And we're recording this just before the election in November. And I'd like to start by figuring out where we are mental health-wise in the pandemic. I'd like to play a clip. And this is from the second presidential debate. People are losing their jobs. They're committing suicide. There's depression, alcohol, drugs at a level that nobody's ever seen before. We have to open our country. You know, I've said it often. The cure cannot be worse than the problem itself. So, Don, how about that? Are we seeing levels of depression, suicide, et cetera, that we have never seen before? No, no, there's no the stats do not bear him out. Let me just give you some examples. In, um, we have a lot of research that's come in from Asia and from Europe, but the United States research, of course, because we just, um, the virus, uh, the pandemic began in March, some of our research is sort of three or four months behind that. So we have a new study, we have uh, the CDC produce some statistics at the end of June, um, we have a number of studies from Lancet, from the Journal of the American Medical Association, as well as the New England Journal of Medicine, all very fine journals that publish rigorous studies. And the numbers are um, uh, uh, kind of all over that place. Um, yes, there is increase in depressive symptoms, but it's important to recognize that depressive symptoms is not the same as clinical depression. So th- those are the symptoms, but in terms of actual increases in suicides and, and alcoholism and so forth, are, are we seeing? Nothing has actually borne out the absolute increase in suicide. There are some people talking about suicide a little bit more than they have. Um, and we have to be very careful that we don't simply say the pandemic is causing this because it's causing the stress and anxiety. And then people use various means of coping. We do know that the alcohol consumption has increased, but we don't know if alcoholism 
is also on the increase. We do know that drug uh, use has increased. We do know that um, liquor stores were considered an essential service. <laughs> yes, yes, that is true. Uh, and um, but and there has been a lot more consumption because people aren't going out to drink; they're staying home to drink. And for people who are um, who are not drinking because they are, you know, they're sober and they're going through a twelve step program or they're in a drug rehab program. This could be a very challenging time for them because they don't have the usual supports that are in place. So even though um, we hear about all of these symptoms, we can't say that the cure is worse than what people are going through because we, there are lots of things that we can do that are very easy. We're going into the holiday season, which uh, cheers up a lot of people. I think people feel like they could use some Good cheer. Let's hear uh, what some of our officials have to say about that. We do not want a Thanksgiving t- dinner to turn tragic because someone unwittingly exposed a large member, uh, a large number rather, of their family members to the coronavirus. We urge everyone to take stock of how many people you may be inviting to your Thanksgiving table. This is not the year to plan to visit out-of-state relatives or to invite them to New Jersey. Start planning your holidays now and please plan for a smaller table this year so we can help ensure that you can once again gather at a larger one next year. Well, that was our governor. And here's Anthony Fauci, America's doctor, talking on Good Morning America. Well, I, you know, understanding that everyone has this traditional, emotional, understandable, warm feeling about the holidays and bringing a group of people, friends and family together in the house indoors, that's understandable. But we really have to be careful this time and each individual family evaluate the risk benefit of doing that particularly when you have people coming in from out of town who may have been on airplanes in airports to just come into the house. If you have vulnerable people, the elderly or people with underlying conditions, you better consider whether you want to do that now or maybe just forestall it and just wait and say, you know, this is an unfortunate and unusual situation. I may not want to take the risk. But then it's up to the individuals and the choices they make. Okay, so who should we invite? To our Thanksgiving table, who should we invite to Christmas or Hanukkah? What do you think? Uh, there are a number of factors. Um, first of all, you look at your community levels. I've heard a number of people say that <clears throat> if you live in Maine or Vermont, you should stay in Maine or Vermont and not invite anyone from outside of Maine and Vermont because their numbers are very, very low. And that's when um, we begin to get into trouble. So the first thing you do is you look at your community levels. And you also look at where your guests are coming from. And uh, if you have been, um, as I've heard many people talk about, if you have have developed a pod, for example, you've got a young family and there's maybe a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and a a baby, and um, the grandparents live nearby, and you see those grandparents um, all the time, then they are essentially creating a pod, and that is that they're used to being with each other both physically and emotionally, and there would be less risk. You can also ask people to quarantine 14 days before, and you can also ask people to get a test. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a source of a little friction in my own family. We were 
pondering what to do for Thanksgiving. And, uh, we, you know, we've got a relative from New York City. You know, my sister-in-law would sort of like to have him quarantine and get tested before coming. We don't want uh, my dad, you know, to get he's, – he's up there in age right now. So uh, – but that's caused a little tension. <laughs> a tough decision for my nephew. Is he going to quarantine? He's a busy guy. And so I imagine a lot of families are wrestling with this right now. Absolutely, they are. And um, it is causing some tension, but I think that – this is where you can't be afraid to speak um, your truth and what is important to you because it will if you if you agree to do something that you don't feel comfortable doing, you're not going to feel comfortable that day with your family anyway. So you might as well say this is what would help me get through you know feel more comfortable and would protect our family. So, I think that people need to hang on to their, you know, what they really believe in. And uh, because it is about safety and you don't want to take the risk, roll the dice, and then just hope that nothing happens. That's a difficult conversation to have, I think. How would you suggest broaching that with your family members? Let's, Let's just take one step back. Planning holidays is difficult under the best of circumstances. There's a reason why people become depressed after the holidays is because it's been such a difficult time. We revisit our childhood um, experiences, things that didn't go well or um, wish you had wish they had gone better. So it is it is a tough thing to plan to begin with. So now we add the um, the pandemic on top of it. And I think that you begin with the facts. So, for example, if um, someone lives in, if someone who's hosting or wants to host an event, that you look at your community surroundings. This is what's going on right now in our community. And this is what's going on in your community. I would feel more comfortable if you quarantined for two weeks before you came and had a COVID test on top of that. And the important thing is to have the COVID test because if you're exposed to, and, I, and I'm sure that many of your listeners have heard this, if you're exposed to someone who has tested positive, you're not going to test positive the next day. It's going to be at least five to six days before you test positive. The range is two to 14, but the average that they're seeing is around five days. So getting a test, say, four days before you go to visit one uh, a relative probably is workable you'll have but then you have to quarantine after you have that test because the test is only as good for the moment that you are tested you can you can say these words with love and with care you don't want anything to happen to anyone who comes to your table and hopefully next year will be better and if they choose not to come um that you're sorry but um, this is something that you feel that it's a short, you know, if you think about the amount of time that we're talking about here, we're talking about a holiday in 2020. There have been other times in our country where we have endured things like this. Um, World War II, Vietnam, people didn't come home. People were, were sent to war. And we had to bring people together as best we could and if we couldn't see that person, you know, it was difficult, but 
it meant that we could work it through and then, you know, celebrate two, three times uh, the following year when that person comes home or when we're all safe. So even though we've had many, many months of semi-isolation and not being able to gather as we usually do, and, and we have many more months of this potentially ahead of us, it sounds like you're saying the safety benefits of staying put outweigh the mental health benefits of getting together. Well, I think you have to look at each one of the variables. You know, what does your community look like? Is it an indoor and outdoor celebration? Now, of course, in the Northeast, we always have to consider that it's going to be cold. In the South, in the West, they may not have those same restrictions. How long will we be together? You know, if you've got people sitting around a table, 12 people talking and laughing and, you know, for six or seven hours, the newest research shows that, you know, the longer you are in the presence of a person who is potentially positive or is carrying the virus, you have a much greater likelihood to contract it yourself. Uh, So the number of people at the gathering, where people are coming from, and is alcohol going to be served? Because that brings down your ability to you know, make wise decisions. Even carols at the spinet, we, we know that singing can be... Uh... Exactly. And, and we know that singing is um, laughing, singing, screaming, all of those things. So if you have met the criteria, in other words, we're all from the same area, our numbers are low. We're only going to have six people. We're only going to meet for, you know, get together for two hours. We're going to eat outside on the porch. We're going to, and you, may, you do all of these mitigation factors. Then there's the other actual event itself, the food, avoiding self-serve or buffet style. And I'm here to tell you and your listeners, you should never eat from a buffet again, ever. (laughs) Um, I have, as a, you know, healthcare provider, I have always, always looked at people at buffets and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. You mean those those little infrared lights don't kill all the germs? No, they don't. No, they don't. Because think about it. Somebody's coughing. They cover their mouth instead of using their elbow. Then they pick up the serving uh, spoon. They put that, that whatever bacteria on this or viruses on the serving spoon. And then, whoops, accidentally the whole thing falls into the tray. I don't have to go on. You know what I'm talking about. We're going to get letters from the National Buffet Association. I just know it. Happy to get them. Um, the other thing is... Consider having guests to bring and eat their own food, not potluck. Don't make me eat my own food anymore, please. All right. But (laughs) the other thing you can do is have one person serve all the food so that multiple people are not handling the serving utensils. And all of these points are on the um, COVID Explained website. Have extra masks, extra hand sanitizer. That last point. So in terms of who should be doing the serving, I've acknowledged on Morristown Green, so I've had COVID. So I in theory, at least have antibodies. In fact, I tested for them and I do have antibodies. Should I be the one serving the food? Well, I think, I I think that depends, you know, how you feel about it and how other people would feel about it. You know, there's a lot that we don't know about, about the antibodies and how long they last and how powerful they are. But if you, you know, and you would wear a mask and you would wear gloves and you would be the only one touching the utensils and you would have windows open. So I think that there are lots of things that you could, you know, to make your family more comfortable, that might be something that, you know, would be very helpful for them. You're listening to the Morristown Green Podcast. 
We'll be back after a word from our sponsor. And now, news from Atlantic Health. Morristown Medical Center, named the number one hospital in New Jersey for the third year in a row by U.S. News and World Report. Morristown Medical Center is also nationally recognized for leadership in cardiology and heart surgery, as well as orthopedics and gynecology. We're here for you with enhanced safety measures in place, so don't delay care. Morristown Medical Center, part of Atlantic Health System. Visit AtlanticHealth.org slash Best Hospital. Our guest is Morristown psychotherapist Donna Gaffney. I was listening to a talk um, online earlier this week uh, by Dr. Stephen Sherris from uh, Morristown Medical Center, and they have started a, a COVID recovery center. And he referenced compliance fatigue is what he called it, how we've been doing this stuff with the masks and the distancing. As we see now, the numbers are starting to rise again. And, and I think uh, the governor has said people are starting to uh, forget or get too comfortable and are, they're letting their guard down. And I, like I say, I went to a concert at Christmas in October I, in Morris Plains last weekend, and it was in a parking lot and a band was playing Christmas songs. And it felt so good to do something that seemed normal, even though Christmas in October is not normal, <laughs> to get a little bit of Christmas cheer a little early. But then I, I felt awfully guilty about it. You know, even though people were wearing masks and they were kind of sitting far apart and I was trying to keep my distance, you know, people in the band were sitting pretty close together and they were all playing. And I, it just hit me later that, you know, this is what they're talking about, I think, with compliance fatigue. To me, it just seemed I'd been waiting so long to do something that felt kind of normal and felt kind of good. And I'm wondering if these are the things that we sort of have to be wary of right now. Well, the pandemic fatigue or compliance fatigue, although there's not uh, really not any research on it, people are talking about it in in terms of why people, uh, you know, could this be the reason why they're, you know, feeling um, that they just can't keep keep it up anymore? And certainly, we we saw that a um, hundred years ago with the flu, when people went out to a parade to celebrate the end of World War One because they thought they didn't have to worry anymore. And of course, that was the worst situation that you could, and that really just launched the second wave. But pandemic fatigue is not unlike other times that we are dealing with with huge uh, disasters or stressors, where the energy needed to tackle the crisis is then replaced by feelings of exhaustion and fatigue. It's, it's sort of when it's, we've gone from an acute phase to a chronic stressor. The adrenaline is running out. And just think about you get that the announcement for the big snowstorm or the hurricane coming. And you know, you run out, you buy batteries, you have the candles, you're all ready to go, the kids are excited, they're home from school, and then the power goes out and then power stays out. And suddenly the excitement of, wow, we have to be super prepared for this, like camping, and we begin to come up with all these comparisons is like, okay, I'm done with this. I don't want to, I don't want to know about this anymore. Yeah, we had that exact double whammy this summer when the tropical storm knocked out power here for several days right in the middle of the pandemic. So the differences between the hurricane and the snowstorm is there's an end to it. And then you can get back. The, the uncertainty of what's happening with the, the virus certainly feeds into our exhaustion is that how can I keep dealing with this? How can I keep, you know, keep on keeping on? And for healthcare professionals, it's it's even more difficult because they have to get ready to go back to the bedside should they be needed. We're fortunate right now that New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, 
are doing well, although our numbers are creeping up. And the issue uh, of what's going on in the Midwest is terrifying. We lived through that in in the spring. I did a lot of work with um, first responders, um, the frontline nurses, and in all my years of teaching nurses, supervising nurses, and I'm you know have a psych mental health background. Every one of them said we've never ever experienced anything like this and then would add please wear your mask we can't take care of any more people we've all had conversations with people i was went into um you know all safe distancing a coffee shop and a woman behind me is not wearing a mask and i said you know you really should be wearing your mask there's a sign that says please wear your mask and she said oh no i never get anything i said it's not about you it's about all the other people that you could be infecting in in this space that's very interesting because at the uh, the morristown council meeting this week that came up and there was a question about in that exact situation you describe should you confront the individual directly and i think that the mayor and the town attorney suggested not directly confronting but rather talking to the management uh, or in an extreme case, you might contact the police because there is an executive order that says right, endorsed right. you're supposed to wear a mask. But you you think it's okay to? Well, you know, I just because because of my background, I had absolutely no hesitation. And I also I think we know when we're in a situation where we can say it with care and concern. And I always have extra masks with me, and I'll say here here's here's one for you. What if they still refuse? And what what's the right course of action? Again, it depends where you are. And I feel the most concern for the shopkeepers, the people who are, you know, running the restaurants or the small hot dog stand on the street. These people are every day confronted with or exposed to people who don't want to wear a mask. I think we have far less of a problem with this in New Jersey than than other places where I've been. But we'll always really respond to those who are wearing it. And I read one comment that said, glaring at somebody who's not wearing a mask doesn't work. But I remember going for a walk actually at Lawanica Park and two young women were approaching me. The young woman said, thank you for wearing a mask. And I think that's where we begin. We begin with our gratitude for those people who are wearing a mask. We're dealing with this pandemic fatigue. We have to keep reminding ourselves to do the things that will protect right. us. At the same time, you know, Vice President Biden, he used the phrase dark winter. We're about to go into a dark winter, a dark winter. Many of us do get kind of depressed when the weather gets gray and the long winter sets in. So we have those two things operating what do you tell patients who normally have like seasonal affective disorder? What are some strategies we can take away from that that might help us here with what we're dealing with now? But we have a lot we can learn from other countries. There was a fabulous uh, study done in uh, Europe, in the Scandinavian countries. Uh, there's a a country, that an island actually in uh, Norway called Tromso. Uh, Trumso, I guess you pronounce it. And um, they have two hours of sunlight in the wintertime. That's it. <laughs> but they have the most remarkable sense of well-being. No one gets depressed. No one has seasonal affective disorder. And, and I'll, What's the alcoholism rate there, can I ask? <laughs> 
um, this defies uh, translation. In Denmark, it's called Hyuga, H-Y-G-G-E, which is this untranslatable quality of places and people and togetherness. In Norway, it's called Kozlik. And it's where they there's an attitude or a feeling of coming together in these very cold settings. And you know, Denmark has the highest happiness quotients in the world. So can you achieve Hugo via Zoom? You could do it by Zoom, but you can also do it outside. So many people think that they can't go out in the winter. And I was on a wonderful um, a webinar the other day with a, a gentleman um, who has written about the outdoors for years. And he said, you know, there's really no such thing as bad weather. There's only bad clothing. I asked him the question. I said, okay, everyone's talking about this cold, dark winter. And how do we how do we reframe that? And that's what the people in Trumsa did. They had this mindset that winter was really a fabulous part of their lives. And they wore headlamps when they walked. And anybody who's ever done hiking probably has one of those. But I, I said to him, I said, so how do we help people reframe or reprogram what we think about winter? And he said, well, the first thing you do is you start with a good pair of boots and liners because it's all about being comfortable. If you remember some of those old pictures from um, the the Queen Mary cruises that went across the the Atlantic Ocean in, in the northern Atlantic, they were all sitting on their deck chairs wrapped up in blankets and, you know, sitting next to other people, reading wonderful picture of the New York City schools, a school room on the Staten Island Ferry, sitting outside with their coats on. If we're comfortable, we can enjoy the situation. So can, can you apply any of that uh, mindset to social distancing and isolation and self-quarantine? I think you can can do some of that. Let me give you an example. So I was talking to a young woman yesterday. She has a five-month-old baby. The first reaction that most people would probably think, oh, no, you had your baby during the pandemic. How hard was that? It's just the opposite. This was a time she said we couldn't go anywhere. No one could come see the baby. So we just stayed together. And we didn't have to worry about hurting anyone's feelings because we had to tell them to stay away or if they had a cold. You know, we were outside because it was warm. Uh, But even if it wasn't warm, you could bundle up the baby. And she said, it was really wonderful. Let's see how she feels when the kid's a teenager. (laughs) Well, the teenagers are a whole different ballgame. But they're the wizards at the um, social media. And you know, about using Zoom and all of their their apps. But I think that we can begin to reframe some of what we're experiencing, especially as we go into the colder months. We might not be able to go swimming, but maybe there's a frozen lake that we can go on. And of course, you want to be careful. Um, Don't try that in Atlanta, say. uh, No. We do have to think about where we live. It makes a huge difference. There are people, I am sure, in the southern part of the United States, are going to have their Thanksgiving dinners outside. And and that's what they should be doing. But I think we can really begin to think about creating new opportunities for social activities. The city of Edmonton in Canada actually loves the winter. 
and they have uh, they they call it their winter winter toolkit, and they suggested things like a winter festival, you know, where you're building snowmen outside or some other kind of competition or music outside. There's no reason why what you experience the Christmas in October couldn't couldn't occur uh, outside, even if in the in the snow. The dead of winter is actually a misnomer. There are lots of things that are living in the winter. And these are great opportunities for kids especially to learn. If you can put up a bird feeder, because you're now attracting other living beings to your backyard or to your window. I've spent the whole summer trying to keep a squirrel out of my uh, kitchen. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to put anything near my windows. (laughs) Right, right. You know, kids will go outside any time of year. And we're usually, we, the adults are saying, oh, but it's raining, maybe you shouldn't go out. And well, there's really no reason if they have the right clothes. So I suggest that for holiday giving this year, you think about the boots with the liners, the good gloves, and all of those things. I mean, we don't have to be skiing, we don't have to be snowboarding. We can simply be walking through cold weather and through snow. Taking a walk in the winter solves at least at least three essential pandemic needs. You reduce your exposure to the coronavirus. You maximize the benefits of nature-based healing to promote mental health. And by the way, there is a huge literature that talks about how being in green spaces and blue spaces, in other words, water or trees, even if the trees are, you know, are evergreen trees, really promotes a sense of well-being. And, uh, and that's what we really are going for. We can also minimize our social isolation as well as getting physical exercise. And if you walk with someone, you're also maintaining that socialization. So it all begins to change your mindset about the winter. And I think we have some wonderful parks um, in, in, uh, in Morris County I've had no difficulty over the years cross-country skiing six feet apart from people. So keeping my social distance out there will be very easy, I think, as slow as I go. Um, are you working on a book on all this? Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm actually working with a colleague of mine uh, who is, uh, specializes in life coaching and nutrition. And when we were working with the, um, the nurses and the other healthcare and other healthcare providers in the midst of the pandemic, they would say things to me like, well, when this is all over, you know, I'm really going to have to talk to someone or I don't have time to eat or I don't, I I'm, I'm eating too much. And so we began to listen to um, a lot of their um, concerns and we began to think about, um, you know, we always uh, say self-care, self-care, but what exactly is that? What's the book called? We're going to call it Radical Well-Being. We're going to include strategies and we're also going to include stories. Well, that sounds like a, a great virtual stocking stuffer for our virtual Christmases on Zoom. <laughs> right. And uh, let me be the, the first to wish you, Donna Gaffney, very happy holidays. Thank you. You too. Today's episode of the Morristown Green Podcast was brought to you by Morristown Medical Center, ranked New Jersey's number one hospital three years in a row. A big thank you to them and to our special guest, Donna Gaffney. We'll include links to her work and to some of her favorite mental health resources on morristowngreen.com. 
Our thanks to the Morris Plains Community Band and Choir for the festive sounds you're hearing. And most of all, thank you for tuning in. For MorristownGreen.com, this is Kevin Coughlin wishing you a very happy and healthy holiday season.